Good evening. So I'll just give you a point of advice. If you're ever with Randy Carlton and he says, we're going on an adventure, turn around and walk away because that's what he said at the beginning of this trip. Um, I appreciate the songs. Those are two of my favorites. And to God be the glory, great things he has done. That's, that's the sum of this whole trip. Um, I want to say a couple of things to everybody here. Thank you for your patience. Um, I know Spencer is, voiced this this morning. I know you've been curious. I know you've been wor- wondering I appreciate that you gave us time to think and pray and process all this. Um, And now I think we can tell you a whole lot more about what God did. Um, We're going to try and tag team this back and forth because there's a couple of instances where I think our experiences give you a better idea of what happened. I asked Spencer how much time he usually allots for an evening service. And he said, we want the story, so you can nix the idea of a time limit. Yeah, that's him. All right. Um, Thank you also for your prayers. They were answered. Um, Not just in our getting home, but in the strength that we were given. The Spirit moved upon us. He was active. And you'll hear more about that in a bit. Um, this may be a little haphazard. We're still trying to work on getting this together and understanding what all God did. We've done a lot of processing and thinking, praying, talking with our families. A lot of what I have to say has come out of discussions with my wife. Um, You probably remember the day after we got back, she spoke at Ladies' Day here, which I think got a little overshadowed. I'll just be honest with you. Um, so I first want to say kudos to all the ladies who worked so hard to put that together. I think that was a wonderful day. It was a day of testimony in the face of what all was going on. I was told there were 300 ladies here and 150 or so were not from Valley View. And that's a wonderful thing for so many to come here and study. And the topic was Psalm 23, and I have an appreciation for that psalm that I will never forget, because God shepherded us in this, in this work. Um, probably the most encouraging thing that came out of, that I heard while we were down there, is that someone asked Rachel if she could go ahead with speaking in the face of all the uncertainty. And her response was, Of course I can, because if I don't, the devil wins. And I said, if she can do that, we can do whatever we need to do to get back home, and God can take care of us. This is the team. Um, I think you know there were five of us here from Valley View, myself, Randy, my dad, Dennis, Carla, my sister-in-law, she's here somewhere too, and Matt McDonough. And... There were 33 other team members, most of those are from Little Rock, and you know, we've made this trip several times down to Gonaive, Haiti, which is about three hours drive north of the capital of Port-au-Prince, that's where you have to fly in and out. And the organization is the Haiti Christian Development Project, which works to support churches as they're growing. And I've been going long enough to tell you they're growing. There are places that we're going now where there were no churches seven years ago. So we go on this medical mission week to these churches out in villages that are growing and trying to minister to people. We go to take care of the new Christians and their medical needs. We go so that they can bring community members to us and help them as a way of ministering to those around them. So we typically go, and the way the clinics are usually set up is that we divide into two teams. Um, so the, the group kind of splits down the middle and one goes to this town and one goes to this town and we go in a caravan of vehicles. This is one caravan. And we go to these different areas. We set up with the church there. We see patients for eye, for dental, for medical and take care of them that day. So we go into this trip planning to do these things but 
Haiti was slightly different. Haiti is always a little bit, at, uh, at, at always a little bit, there's always a little bit of unrest. Uh, but it's been worse lately. Their currency is going downhill. Um, it's the, the Haitian currency has lost a lot of value in the last few months and they are struggling. You know, whenever you're living on the equivalent of a few dollars a day and that becomes a few less dollars a day, things get difficult. Added to that is that the Haitian government had an, a, a deal with Venezuela and the other countries in the Caribbean to try and lower their fuel prices and use those savings to build better roads, more social programs, more support of the society there. And that hasn't come to fruition over the last couple of years. And so as we arrived, Port-au-Prince had had some protests and people had been um, voicing their displeasure as we got there, and then it got worse. And people started protesting more and more. And a protest kind of consists of things that you would normally expect. Chanting, yelling, burning trash, uh, maybe burning tires or demolishing cars. Um, and there were even people who marched on the presidential palace and were throwing rocks at it, trying to get the president to resign because he's the one they blame for it all. He's the one who made promises that they, ha they feel haven't been kept. And the protest method that gets the most attention and gets perhaps the most dangerous is a roadblock. People will gather together whatever they can find and block the road and say, well, things aren't as they should be, so we're going to block commerce, we're going to stop traffic, we're going to make people hear what we have to say. Could be rocks, could be burning tires, broken down vehicles, even a tractor trailer. Um, poles, whatever they can find. And this leads to a situation where there may be some trying to make a political statement and there's others that just say, hey, let's go be angry together. And others who say, maybe we can get something out of this too. So Saturday and Sunday, we did some clinics. Things went pretty smoothly. We had seen where maybe there had been some roadblocks, but nothing bad. Um, Went to church on Sunday morning, had a wonderful worship with a church of about 200 there. And then Monday morning was our first full day of clinics. And so get in the vehicles, um, pack everything up. Every vehicle's got Americans and Haitian translators in it. You can't see them, but there on the right in the back of that vehicle is Matt McDonough, kind of wedged in there. So we start heading out of town, and as we hit this intersection, one group goes to the left, one go goes to the right and we're heading out for where we're doing clinics, and I think both of us were headed about an hour out of town. So one group was all five of us. It just so happened that all five of us Valley View people were in one group going to the left. The others went to the right, and we found out later they didn't even really make it out of the city. They hit a roadblock on the outskirts. They negotiated with people and said, hey, we're just a medical mission team. We're going to help people. Can we get around? Can we go around this way? And they were told, yeah, go ahead. So they did. But other people who were protesting said, no, you can't. Chased them down with motorcycles, surrounded them, made them stop, and they had to turn around and come back. But we didn't know this. We were going on our way because we had about an hour and a half to get to a town called Gramon. So we're on our way, running down these gravel roads, Everything's been going fine. We get to the outskirts of town and we run across a few rocks in the road. And I think it was some teenagers who set up their own version of a roadblock. And our leader, Pasius, the Haitian man, gets out and talks to them and said, come on guys, we're just going to help some people. And so um, some of the men get out and lift rocks. That's what Matt was going to do. Um, and so they moved the rocks out of the way and they let us through. I opened my door to get out and go help, but they didn't need it. They already had it done. So we all load up um, and get back on the road. And then we hit another roadblock just as we hit the pavement. And so we're all kind of stopped here. And then this next picture zoomed in a little bit. There in that front vehicle, there's a, of course, you can see the pole and other stuff blocking the road. In that front vehicle, there's Pasius who's talking to them. 
and we're sitting waiting, and it takes a couple of minutes, and we're like, this is, this is not happening quickly. And he walkie-talkies back to us, it's a no-go, turn around. Okay. So I'm in the back vehicle, I'm driving the back vehicle. I got an American next to me, an American right behind me, Carla's in there, translator and three translators in the back. This is a Land Cruiser. So I let the other four vehicles turn around and go past me, and I start to turn around myself. Uh, but the road had a little bit of a narrowing there, so I had to three-point it. And people came up around us. Um, in this picture, if you look in the far distance, there's some people walking towards us. There were also people kind of around the sides of the road. And they came down around us and um, came down around the car. Um, and that made me have to slow down. I couldn't go as quick as I'd like. And as I'm trying to edge forward, I hear this clear voice in my head that says, no one gets hurt. And that was not for me. And I said, okay. Because I then thought, if I, do, if I don't take this the right way, if I do this too quickly and I hurt somebody, they're all coming after us, and there's no getting out of here. And so I said, okay. So I had to kind of slop, stop and slow down and just I was trying to motion them out of the way. And then my door opened. Because I hadn't locked it when I had gotten out before. And hands came in and grabbed the steering wheel. And so I and the Scott, the man next to me, were trying to take their hands off of the steering wheel and kind of grappling with them. And then another hand reaches under the steering column and puts, his, puts it on the key. And we grapple with him, but we can't stop it. He turns the engine off and takes the key. And as soon as he does that, they kind of back away from us. I get the door shut. I get it locked. And even then, I don't remember panicking. I don't remember being fearful. There was some anxiety. And there were thoughts of, how do we get out of here? But again, a voice says, no one gets hurt. Okay, God. Okay, you tell me. So we radio to the rest of the team who had already gone around the band and down the hill. They were nowhere around us. And tell them, they've got the key, we're stuck. Pasius needs to come back and help us out of this, see if he can get this key and, and, and translate for us. And I decide I'm trying to show all these people that I'm no threat and showing them my hands, just trying to make eye contact and say, and let them see that I am no threat to them. But I do see men walking around with rocks in their hands. There's Carla, and that's her translator for the week, Jerome. He was put there by God. Because he was sitting at a window, and he rolls it halfway down and starts telling them, please come talk to me. And he starts trying to talk to these members of the mob and say, listen, these people are just here to help. And he gets argument back saying, no, they're from the government. And he explains to them calmly and says, no, they're just American doctors. They're here to help. They're trying to take care of people. They don't want anything from you. They just want to help people. And you could see within the mob, they're arguing. People saying, no, no, they're, they're at fault with all this that we're dealing with. And others are saying, no, no, they're just doctors. Let them go. And he negotiates with them for a while. And it, of course, felt like an eternity, but I think it was probably five to ten minutes. And then they demand money. And their initial demand was $1,000. And thankfully, he didn't tell me that because I don't think we could have done that. He took it upon himself to say, no, no, I'm, they can't do that. 
they don't have that much. And started negotiating, and it came down to 100 And he said, they want $100. And I said, that we can do. So we bring together money, and I say, I want to see the key. I want to see the key before we hand him the money. And so the guy with the key right there at the window. So we hand him the money, takes his time and counts it, throws the key through the window. And, and we started up and we got out of there. God was in it all. I, God gave us guidance. The Spirit was there. Um, this is one of those instances where I think Randy showing, telling you about his experience from another side of it will give you more of a perspective of what this was like. So bad news, it's my turn. While we have a little break, I just want to say, number one, thank you. Y'all partnered in this mission effort with us more than some of you may have realized. I'm probably more emotional right now thinking about this. I've been more emotional since I've been back about it than while I was there, and I think the difference is y'all aren't praying for me anymore, and that's okay. That's okay. But if you know my family, please continue to pray for me. There was a sense of peace and calm that was over us for the for the bulk of time while we were there. A little pers- maybe a little perspective on, on the brief, brief, brief history of Haiti. Haiti was a former French colony. In 1804, they fought the French off and got their independence. And the French said, that's fine, you're independent, but you have stolen property from us. You owe us millions of dollars. The property that you have stolen from us, by the way, is you, because you are our property, you are our slaves. They spent from roughly 1804 to about 1946 or 47 paying that debt back. Talk about a country that's been behind the eight ball, been behind the curve for a very long time. That puts a little perspective. When we say they are poor people, they are poor people. When we say that we drove through Cite Soleil, which is the poorest slum in the Western Hemisphere, believe us, we went through the poorest slum in the Western Hemisphere. We went through that, getting there to get to Ghanaive, not only with police escort, but also by paying off some local uh, gang lords or drug lords. That, that was kind of a clue that we were no longer uh, in America. One of my goals while we were there, after all this started happening, was every day, the best I could, I wanted to make Tommy and Dennis Nix laugh because uh, if I could keep them a little, a little calm, help me stay calm. So back to the, uh, wh- where we left our hero. We left our hero on a road in Haiti, having just gotten away from some very upset Haitian people, and now you know why they're very upset. This, this, was our, this, was a, this was my chariot for the week. This is the Land Cruiser that was pow- uh, driven by Dr. Nix. This is not some really $80,000 Land Cruiser that you find at Central Toyota. This is the, to- this is the Land Cruiser of a developing country. It's a really nice vehicle. This is a picture uh, that kind of has an inside joke with me and Jeff Madden's uncle, Hervey Madden. In 2010, when I went, I don't know if it was this rooster or not, but there was a rooster that woke us up every morning. It started at 5.45, and then it was 5.30, and then it was 4 o'clock, and then it was 3.30. We wanted to kill that rooster. So I should have known that when we got in the car on the very first day, this rooster pops on the hood, this was not going to be a good trip. Some good was done. This is a clinic that we did on our first day. This is, this is my translator. This is the road to Gromorn. Grossmorn, which means fat mountain. The Gromorn trip is rather central to our trip. This was the day that was the worst day of the trip, to say the least. Originally, I was to ride with, with Tommy and I got impacted in his land cruiser with Tom and Carla, but it was a tight fit, and Dean Wright came over and said they had some open seats in his SUV. So I jumped out with my stuff and my two bags of water, one of which had sprung a leak, and I promised the water on the seat was fresh drinking water. It was before the incident. 
I've wondered how I would have reacted had I still been sitting in that front seat next to Tom when all this went out, all this happened. How, how would I have handled myself? How would I have handled the situation? And I don't know. But we don't have to know because God took me out of that car and put me someplace else. God put me somewhere else. And in our SUV was the driver, Dean Wright, Dr. Cindy Rowe, Rachel Sargent, one of the nurses, Sarah Griffin, a, a pharmacist. And before we left, one of the ladies made a joke, uh, kind of a prophetic joke, about if there was any trouble on this trip, I would be there to protect them. And I said, yes, I will be a good protector because I know stuff. Ah, I know how to scream really loud. So off we went. And as we discussed, things were fairly uneventful for the main part of the trip to Gromorn. There was evidence of protest activity from the night before in the streets of Ganaive, some piled rocks, ashes on the road, and steel belts left on the road from the burned tires. But as we got away from the city and paved roads, we were making pretty good time at the gravel road toward, toward uh, Gromorn. We came upon the first of the still existing roadblocks. Passengers made a negotiation, and we were allowed to get, uh, get out of the, our vehicles and move from the rocks. And I even made a joke about wishing Wiley Stanley was with me to help move those rocks. Back in the SUVs, we, we got, and away we went to the next big roadblock with more people, more obstructions, and we were not allowed to move. So we turned around, went back to Gunnaive. Then something changed, and we were stopped on the road. And at first, I wasn't sure why. Got out, and we talked. It is difficult to know that a part of your team, a friend and a colleague, is potentially in harm's way or is in harm's way. You've heard the account from, from Tom, but at first we did not know just what was going on. After we stopped the road waiting, I got out and noticed a few young people and some mothers walking around looking at us from the other side of the road. Not a big crowd. And oddly, I started, started wondering, what would I do if this crowd got bigger? What would I do if some big dudes started coming up? I looked down, I saw a couple of rocks on the road that were, would probably fit in my hands. I thought, well, that's what I'll do. I'll grab those rocks. And then I thought, that's a weird thought to have on a mission trip for God. I'm going to grab rocks and beat people. That's the, I'm going to beat them and then save them? I mean, okay. What we knew from around the bend is that Tom and Carlos Landcruiser had been stopped. And we were told, what we were told is that he was being dragged out of the driver's side. And we could not hear anything from where we were. So now we have this image of Tommy being dragged out. I looked over at Dennis, and I cannot really describe the look on his face. But he was looking back in, <clears throat> he was looking back in the direction of where Tom and Carla were. And I remember watching his jaw set and twitch. I remember watching him as his hands, his flexed fists, open and close. And I watched a father contemplate his next steps to save his family. I said, Dennis, if you go, I'll go with you. But we've got women here to think about and to, to check on. He paused and walked to another SUV. Now I know. That was a very Rambo and sexist thing of me to say, but it's what I said. After saying that, my next thought was that we have a, I have a family of my own back home I've got to get back to and think about. So fortunately, it was at that point we saw Passius get on a motorcycle and head back to get, try to get Tom and Carla safely away from that crowd. So I asked the three of the other people with me, Cindy, Sarah, and Rachel, to pray with me. So we huddled up, put our foreheads together, and prayed. You might say we called in the ultimate air support. Those rocks in the road were not my weapon of choice, but rather prayer to God and prayer to the Almighty. I prayed that our friends would be safe, that we'd all be back together and on our way to safety too. I asked that in some way our eyes, and this is the, the first scripture that kind of popped in my head, that our eyes would be opened. And as Elijah spoke to Elisha, that our eyes would be opened, that we could see the army of God on the hill surrounding us. From 2 Kings. I could feel God with us, and I could feel his spirit. Our helper was present and working in us and working on us. Within a couple of minutes, we saw their land cruiser coming back our way pretty fast, and Tom was in the driver's seat going. <laughs> so we jumped back in, and we followed him. Now, I'm not sure if they do rally car races in Haiti, but that's kind of how we were driving. And uh, this is a Toyota Hilux pickup truck. All this stuff is piled really high with those spider nets on it. 
those things are impressive. It held that stuff down around multiple turns and jags on this potted gravel road until I think the portable toilet fell off of it. And being soft Americans, we've got to have our portable toilet, so we stopped and got it. And then we went back to the HCDP, HCDP's training farm and um, had a little impromptu clinic. After we got back to the farm and was kind of getting out of the cars and everybody was kind of talking to each other, I, I walked up to Tom and I said, I know you're not a very demonstrative person, but I'm giving you a hug. And he let me. We were all physically safe and in one spot, and we were ready to do some good for God, and so we did have an impromptu clinic. We saw quite a few folks that day. I'm not sure the numbers. Uh, sometimes numbers are important to you, and sometimes they're not. They, they quit being important. So we had a lot of bad jokes and a lot of good laughs, and we made it through that first day, or that, that Monday. This was after our Tuesday night um, devotional. A while ago, you saw a, a group picture of everybody on the, on the mission team. As you walk out, that was the headquarters of HCDP, Haitian Christian Development Project. We walked out where that picture was taken that night, and I looked up on the mountaintop, and it's not a great picture because iPhones only do so much, but that's fire being set on top of that mountain. Got a little anxious at that point, but we kept praying. I think this is... That's when you get to the point where you say, all right, what do we do next? Um, so we had that clinic that day and got back to work and saw some people. And we had our nightly dinner and devotional and uh, the leaders of the team said, all right, we're going to have to pack this in. We can't do, do this safely anymore. We're going to start working on getting out of here. So Monday night, we said, let's... Uh, Let's pack up and go. So we, I think, we're ready at 5 a.m. And there were roadblocks on the way. We, we were told there were roadblocks. We can't, we can't even get started. Okay. So Tuesday, we didn't do much. We were with each other, spent some time in prayer. We did some work around headquarters that we could do. Wednesday was about the same. Um, so then the plan came, all right. We're going to drive halfway to, to Port-au-Prince on Thursday. The rest of the way on Friday, we're going to make our flight. And the, the hope was that we would have good escorts. We'd have police. We'd have local uh, community leaders, maybe some contacts with some uh, um, maybe uh, gang leaders to try and get us through. But the escort never came. And so then it was about Wednesday or so when someone brought up the option of a helicopter. And a man named Kevin, who was on the trip, started talking about that. And you want to talk a little bit about Kevin? Randy roomed with Kevin while we were there. And when you all prayed for us, God answered that two months before when he put Kevin on the trip. Kevin Linderman uh, is recently moved to Searcy. He works with African Christian Hospital and the International Christian Health Foundation, IH, or however that works. Um, and he's been in Ghana, he's been in uh, Tanzania, he's been in other African nations. And so he is somewhat familiar with how medical missions work. I did not know who he was, though, when, when he first got there. Matt McDonough and I were roommates with him. And a couple of different mornings, Kevin went jogging early in the morning with James Rucker, who's a, a missionary there. Let me pause for a moment. Some names I want y'all to know. Kevin Linderman is one of those names. James and Abigail Rucker are the missionaries who are there. They are very important to us um, because those three ministered to our, or James and Abigail uh, ministered to us while we were there and took care of us, went out of their way to take care of us while we were still behind. Kevin worked behind the scenes making arrangements, making several phone calls with, with other groups 
to find out really what was going on. I found out later the reason he went jogging on two or three, was it two or three mornings, Matt? Wasn't because he was training for anything, really, but that was the way he was getting out in the morning to see what the pace, the pulse of the city was. In a way, kind of doing reconnaissance for how safe, how dangerous the city was. He has a friend of his from college who is a professor at Harding. His name is Sam Jeffrey. Sam Jeffrey teaches criminology at Harding University. I think he's the head of that, de- that section of the department. Sam Jeffrey, prior to coming to Harding and teaching criminal justice, worked in the CIA for about 11 years and has maintained contacts in the CIA. Did not know that yet. But I joked with Matt one time and said, you know, if they ever make a movie out of this, Kevin, Kevin's going to be that CIA mole in the group. I couldn't figure him out. There was more to him than what I knew. I could tell he was doing something, he was thinking something, I could tell stuff was going on in the background, just didn't quite know what. One of his comments prior to to our going on this trip was that he wasn't sure what he had to offer this group. He wasn't a doctor, he wasn't a nurse, he wasn't a pharmacist, but, you know, had no training in that aspect of it, didn't know what he could do, but maybe he could at least haul stuff for us. He could be a pack mule for us. Well, that pack mule turned out to be every bit as important as another famous mule in the Bible, because that mule saved our life. I'm being overly dramatic just for effect right now. That mule helped us get out of that country. Kevin was different, but he's been overseas for many years. Kevin was quiet, but he was working in the background to keep things going. One of the other, and, and quiet, is, I think, is, is, is a key word here. Because one, one of the scriptures I constantly had running through my, through my head also comes from Elisha. And that of a still, quiet whisper. Not finding God in the fire. And not finding God in the earthquakes. But finding God in those quiet moments. I believe it was Wednesday night when we were still making that decision about are we going to try to push forward? Are we going to try to continue to drive towards Port-au-Prince to get out of here? Or are we going to try to get on an airplane? Or are we going to continue to shelter in place? We had a, Kevin took a couple of us, two or three at a time, kind of quietly to the side because he did not want to, and now I know what was going on, he wasn't trying to usurp the authority there. He wanted to kind of work with people quietly and told us the options. So he had a contact that he was talking to and, and getting a little more information on, on the security of the situation. And after he talked to us and he walked in, he walked away, I squatted down and I prayed to God. And I said, God... I need that gentle breeze. I need that whisper. I'm not saying God manipulated the atmosphere at that point, but a breeze did blow through. I felt at peace for a moment that we were going to be able to make it out of here. Now, at that point, I still thought I'm going to be on the airplane at the original time, and that didn't happen yet, but... The funny thing is, at a different time, I felt that same peace, even though it was the peace about a plan that didn't come to fruition. I remember calling Rachel and saying, we're driving halfway Thursday morning. I feel really good about this. We're short trips. We can, we can get out while everybody's asleep at 5 a.m. But Thursday didn't work out. We couldn't get anywhere. We couldn't go anywhere. So Friday morning came. That was the day of our flights. And we decided we were going to get up as early as we could and get on the road and go. And so we woke up at 3.30, had everything packed. It started raining, which February in Haiti is a dry season. So a heavy rain is not a typical thing. And we actually talked a little bit about, oh, this is God blessing us because people won't get out in the rain. So we packed up everything in the rain, got in our caravan of vehicles. We're sitting at the headquarters waiting to go, and Kevin took a stand. What most of us didn't know was Thursday night, the Haitian president had, announced, had addressed the people, and he had said, 
no, I'm not going anywhere. These thugs who are protesting won't win. I will not be intimidated by them. And in response to that, the U.S. Embassy in Haiti upped their warning level to as high as it'll go, which is essentially, do not travel anywhere in Haiti. And he took a stand and said, I'm not going anywhere, and everybody has to know what just happened. So, car to car, they went around and they told us all what had happened. The five of us were all in the same vehicle, and this was the most surreal moment of my life. I'm sitting in the dark, in the pouring rain, in a foreign country, and I have to make a decision. And people are coming to the window saying, if you're staying, stay. Get out. The rest of us have got to go. And I sit there, we're all just kind of shocked, and I just have a voice again that says, this is not good. And that brought me back to what happened on Monday. And I thought, if that's what happened on Monday, and we're going into the Capitol where the president is, I think that's just going to happen over and over again. I don't think we're going to get there. And I hated to do it, but I turned to the rest of us and said, I don't like this. I don't, I don't think this is safe. I think we need to stay. And each person in the entire group had a pretty difficult decision. Who do we trust? Who, do we get out, who gets us out safely? Which group do we stay with? Does this group stay together? What, what, what happens? And in the pressure of the moment, we all struggled. We talked to each other. We all were pushed to make a decision. And I, Randy, Carla, and Dad stayed at headquarters. Matt went on because he thought that was his best chance of making that flight to get home. I don't hold anything against anybody who went either way. As I said, that was one of the most surreal moments of my life. But the group splitting up was a really tough moment. You want to talk about your son? was a tough moment. Uh, I remember later talking to Jennifer about it, my wife, and y'all know who she is. Um, one of her comments was that she felt like I was being pressured to make that decision, that, that I probably would have made the decision on my own to go on into port, Port-au-Prince, but, but I made this decision to stay with my team, in large part because of knowing what happened on that Monday in large part of knowing what could happen as we try to push those roadblocks and push so supposedly Einstein once said if you keep doing the same thing expecting a different result that's insanity well we kept doing the same thing expecting a different result so like let's stop doing that let's stay here I started paying a little more attention as I mentioned to Kevin who at first I wasn't sure what was going on and then I realized that he knew a lot more and was willing to share more information be more transparent than that, that information and was telling, I'm talking to a guy who's former CIA, I'm talking to a guy who's back in the States, I'm talking to this person. I'm looking at these three other State Department, you know, U.S. State Department, Canadian State Department equivalent in the, in the U.K. These are all saying, don't go, don't go shelter in place. Sure enough, get on, get on the website for our State Department, it says, shelter in place. Get to safety if you can. Oh, and by the way, even though you're an American citizen, you're on your own to get out of the country. Okay. So that's kind of where we were on that, that Thursday morning. Friday morning, excuse me, Friday morning. As they left, it was a weird feeling. Sitting in the dark, in the rain, in a foreign country, and everybody else you know is leaving. 
One of the other uh, men who were on the construction crew was very adamant that driving was a bad idea in his opinion too. And he's, he had made several other or a few other trips as well. And so that made me feel a little better about the, the trip. And then we started getting updates from the road that they were making it through. Matt was communicating with Carla or me because he still had cell service. I'm not going to lie, there's about a 30 minute window there where I got that burning feeling in my chest and the pit of my stomach of, uh oh, I wish I'd gone. And then we started getting more updates. There were nine of us that stayed. And that leaves 29 who drove out. And the way the headquarters is set up, there's, that, there's a main room and two doorways that line up exactly to the exit to the compound. And I remember sitting in a chair, looking through two doors into the dark, watching headlights through the rain back up and fade, and fade away. And we just were sitting there in silence. Um, then we had to call our families and text them or call them as best we could and say, and usually wake them up because it was 4 a.m. here. Wake them up and say, I don't think I'm coming home today. But then Carla got off the phone with Matt and turned to us and said, Matt Nix, Matt's been up all night because he saw the president's address. He saw the travel warnings, and he's been up all night praying that we would stay right where we are. I also found out later that through family, Rachel, and other people, there were many here who woke up at 4 a.m. Central to pray for us to have safe travel that morning at that exact moment. We spent a lot of time in prayer together. We prayed for ourselves. We prayed for the people who had just left. We prayed for the families here. And that's why I want to say something about this man right here. The whole week, he knew when we needed a joke, and he knew when we needed to say, let's pray. Thanks. So Kevin started working more on coordinating the helicopter, and in only way, the only way you get that helicopter to come get you is if an American bank has wired them money electronically and they've got it sitting in their account. And so, as Randy said, Matt McDonough had cell service and Carla and Randy did too, and we're getting text messages, hey, we're, we just went through St. Mark, we're good. We just went through this, we're good. About an hour and a half though, Carla looks at her phone and says, Matt says, you all made the right choice. This is getting really crazy. So later I've had time to talk to McDonough, and he was in the front vehicle. He was in the one that came up to the roadblocks. He saw all the negotiation, the yelling, the confrontations. And he told me they went through about two hours of that before they finally reached a point where they could not go forward anymore. They could not make it to the airport. They could not get into Port-au-Prince. They were stopped at least an hour short of Port-au-Prince. So they had to turn around, and they couldn't make it back to us. So they kind of scrambled. They stopped at a police station, and when I say police station, I'm talking shack and ask them what's possible, what's going on. The police said, we can't help you. So they kind of scrambled for a boarding house, and that's all I can really call it. It was a place with a bed, and that's what they had to do for that night. So for those of us back at headquarters, we were making a little progress, communication with the helicopter company. They were saying, hey, maybe we can get to you. We've got to get the Canadian Embassy cleared out first, so give us some time. We even went to a gravel airstrip that Friday, hoping that they would come, but then they said, no, we can't make it there and back before dark, and we have to make it back to Port-au-Prince before dark. We will not operate in anything short of sunshine. That was another low point. We thought we were on our way. 
but it was God working for us too because those embassy workers had to have flights and embassy workers take precedence. So it was almost certain that we would have gotten bumped off of that flight, been sitting in the airport with no way out and either had to spend the night there or more likely get kicked out onto the streets of Port-au-Prince. Not a place where we wanted to be overnight. But because of God's providence, we could go back to our headquarters. We could be taken care of by the, the Haitian missionaries, James and Abigail, who were there, the Americans who were in Haiti. Be safe and make it and try the next day. And so Saturday, we get up in the morning waiting for a phone call. We get it. They said, we're wheels up in Port-au-Prince, get to the airstrip. So we drive out there, and we had talked about taking a group picture, because that's what Americans do, right? So let's take a group picture on the airstrip, and okay, so we drive out to the airstrip. James Rucker drives us out there, and we're out on this gravel airstrip in the middle of nowhere. And okay, let's get out and take our picture. And we open the door, and I hear the chopper. I said, don't get out, here it comes. And we're all looking around, and this beautiful helicopter lands right in front of us. The other thing that we loved about Saturday is that despite they were in a pretty bad spot, we had gotten word that the other team members were getting helicopter transportation too to the airport. God put us all on helicopters got us all to the airport, and we were reunited on the same plane. You know, I'd never taken a helicopter ride before, and that was the most beautiful experience I've, I've had in the air. Um, that's Matt in front of their helicopter. I showed this picture to my wife. These are the nine of us who stayed behind, and she said, those are nine happy people. Amen. Yeah. Um, one in the dead center, which is right where he should be, is Kevin Linderman. And uh, I'm thankful to him and what he did to uh, be God's soldier that week. And, I mean, it's out of a movie, right? I mean... God provided all that we needed and so much more. I do want to talk a little bit about the good that we were able to do. You know, in all of this that we're talking about with God's providence and taking care of us, there was some work we were able to do. We did do some clinics. This is my dad working in the eye clinic, and the man wearing the clickless shirt is Haitian. I don't think he actually works for Kroger. But I thought it was awesome that he had that t-shirt. But we worked in the eye clinics. We took care of people. This is Randy. I, during one of the clinics, I had a minute where we were a little slow, so I wanted to get some pictures of the team members. And I walk over, and I see this, and I'm like, what's going on? He's praying with this woman whose husband had died five days previously. That's what it's about. She had some medical problems to treat for a little while. But she came to a church and a man prayed with her to comfort her. And that's the type of influence that we hopefully can have, that God can do through us. Carla worked tirelessly. She told me later, when did you have time to take pictures? I was working. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I'm an eye doctor. I just get to float around, do whatever. No, I... I wanted you to see what they did too. And she worked hard all week. And, and Matt tortured people. Now, I, we've talked before about what a dentist can do in Haiti when people are in constant pain. And uh, he did great work all week too. There's a video of that, but I'll spare you. I know you were probably thinking, oh, he's just going to get up here and get emotional again. Well, this is different. Randy's going to get up here and get emotional too. This is a man named Ton, T-O-N. 
while we were sitting in headquarters with nothing to do, God brought us work to do. Ton was brought to us by some other American missionaries in the town. And they said, we have this man here, he can't see, can you look at him and see if there's anything you can do to help him? Sure, be glad to do some work. Ton came in with a cane. I knew then that physically, medically, I doubted I could do anything. He had scars on the surface of his eyes. He had bad cataracts. I told him, even in the best of situations, if you were back in the United States with me, you'd have multiple surgeries, and I don't know that you would see. And he said, that's okay. He said, thank you for taking the time to see me. I asked him more about what had happened, and he said, well, I knew there was a problem about 10 years ago. But I had money to either see the doctor or send my kids to school. Sent my kids to school. But you notice he's smiling because he said, Jesus blesses me every day. The other American missionaries there have taught him about Jesus. He believes. And I told him that he brought me joy and he was a blessing to me. And a blind man asked to take a picture with me. He had a friend with him who said, I want a picture with him. And I got a picture too. And I try to go and bless people, but they do it more for us. While we were also sitting in headquarters, we got the James and Abigail talked to Randy and Carla and said, we know of some Americans down in Port-au-Prince. They have some contacts. They have a daughter who's very, very sick. Would you talk with them by phone and treat her? So they huddled around a cell phone and put it on speakerphone and had a translator, and they did a medical interview by phone, talked to this family about what was going on for their teenage daughter, prescribed medicine, took care of her, and next day got word that she was much better. You know, even when you're stuck, God gives you good things to do. Another thing that uh, we're able to do is work on the Rutgers home. They're trying to build a house and slowly put it together, so several team members did a lot to take care of them. That same day in clinic that I took the picture of the prayer, I saw this. Um, a father brought in his one-year-old, 18-month-old, who wouldn't wake up. He'd been having some fevers. And the baby was completely lethargic and like this. And I got this picture of Randy taking care of him. And I want him to tell you a little bit more about what happened there. The blue shoulder that you see and, and, and the gray hair is a much wiser doctor than myself. That's Dr. Mike Justice, who's been on these trips before. And he kind of came over and helped me with this little kid. But, but the dad brought him in, and as, as he said, it was just lethargic and wouldn't wake up, eyes were closed, and just what I would typically call a floppy baby. Although I tend to think of those as being at birth, not at 18 months old. And, and I thought, okay, he's just a hard sleeper at first. And so I started rubbing, clapping my hands and ru really rubbing his chest. And any of those of you in the medical field know what we mean when we say a deep sternal rub. You're really rubbing the kid wouldn't wake up. Just wouldn't wake up. And Dr. Justice saw me working with the kid. He brought over some water, a little cap, and we started just putting some drops of water in his mouth. And the kid would kind of wake up a little bit and fall back to sleep. So we just sat there and, uh, in a sense, spoon-fed him or, or cup-fed him water. And after about an hour, the kid kind of perked up and was able to walk out. One of the stories that Tom told was uh, the telephone call that Carla and I, Carla, took care of. And we heard, like, the next day or two that the little girl was much better and feeling better and was doing great, fever had broken. And her, I believe it was her father, her uncle, who took care of her, went to church the next Sunday. And completely out of character for him, they said, got up and spoke about the, the providence of God and how God had worked in their lives. And they said, he just doesn't talk in church much, 
was very appreciative for God for allowing us to be able to help in that, that situation. So as he's saying, in the, in the midst of all this chaos, in a sense, we were still able to do some good work. God was able to work through us, would be a better way to say that. Um, yeah, that up. So, this is a short list of what God did to provide for us. As we've talked about, he had a spirit of peace. He gave us the spirit of peace and guidance. It wasn't that we didn't get frustrated or sad, but we were comforted. We were never without food or water. And that's better than we could say for the people around us. We had Christian fellowship and support. We had an amazing team of people who sang praises in the middle of it all. Hearing about you and so many others praying for us was a strength that I hadn't felt before. Mentioning the people getting up so early, people, my brother staying up all night, Rachel told me at one point, I think you're on every church prayer list in this entire town. And we heard those things and we said, okay, God's got us. Kevin, as we talked about, thought he had no role and God put him on that team to help us get out and to help coordinate everything that we needed. James and Abigail Rucker, uh, who've been missionaries down there for two and a half years, those of us who stayed behind, and even before that with all of us, they took care of us, they served us. You know, you think about going on these short-term mission trips saying, you're going to go serve. No. People there serve you. He put the right people in the right place at the right time over and over again. The helicopter pilot, Kevin, Sam Jeffrey, the ex-CIA agent. He had it all planned. The Skype prayer service from here you don't know what that meant to us. It lifted us up. It gave us strength. It encouraged us. It made us cry. That's mostly because the only person we could hear singing was Spencer. <laughs> you know, seriously, thank you for organizing that. It did help. Everyone got out physically unharmed. 38 people in the midst of all that, and we were all okay. I shudder to think what would, have, what would have meant if anybody's had gotten hurt or even worse. What would it have meant to this church? What would it have meant to that mission? I think it, that mission might have been done. It would have had a hard time recovering. Not to say that God can't do that, but he provided in that way. I've got a list of prayers, and I would ask that you write these down, please. Please continue to pray for the work of HCDP, because there are people all around them who need it. It's not the fault of most of these people for what's going on with their government. It's not the fault of, the peop of those people for the protesters and what's getting violent. The vast, vast majority of people are just trying to get by every day. Pray for James and Abigail. They're still there. They're still trying. They're still talking to Haitians. They're trying to tell them about Jesus. You've heard the name Duval Regis. It's the preacher on the other side of Haiti that this church supports. Haitians switch their given names and um, family names. His first name is Duval. His wife is Frederica. He's a preacher in Petit Goave. It's about an hour and a half the other side of Port-au-Prince. It was our hope that we could meet him. The plan was for him to come to at least to the airport while we were there, spend a couple of hours in the airport talking to him, getting to know him, being his family from the U.S., but that didn't work out, obviously. Frederica is struggling with bad complications from diabetes. She's been in and out of the hospital. This church is supporting everything that he does. He and we are his only support. 
We support him financially, personally, but he gives of that money for the preaching school that he supports. He gives money to others who need it. Keep him in your prayers and Frederica. As I mentioned, the Haitian people need your prayers. It's an awful situation, and they're desperate, and I hope that they can be desperate for Jesus. This is James and Abigail, and they're two-and-a-half-month-old, or four-month-old, four-month-old son who's there with them. They're committed to at least another two years, and I don't think you could find better people down there to do what they're doing. This is Duval Regis, and this is the church where he preaches. He's been doing this for over 20 years, and I've been emailing back and forth with him, and even in broken English, he is, uh, he's dedicated to the Lord. So that's that list. So since coming back, I can think of at least two times when God put a scripture right in front of me and said, here I am. Um, a few weeks ago, during the Lord's Supper, I just opened my Bible, as I sometimes do, and I open up a passage and just start reading. And it was Matthew 10, Jesus speaking to the twelve as he commissions them. What I say to you in the dark, tell it in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim from the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And even the hairs of your head are all counted. So do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. Everyone, therefore, who acknowledges me before others, I also will acknowledge before my father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny before my father in heaven. Randy and I heard the whispers. And now we're trying to proclaim it from the housetops. Even before reading this passage as I came back, I said to myself, you cannot deny God in this. Anytime you tell any part of this story, you'd better mention God. So I mentioned before Rachel speaking at Ladies Day and, and speaking about the, the 23rd Psalm. She referenced this text in that talk. They're on YouTube, by the way. They're excellent. You should see that perspective on the shepherd. She texted our whole group after we got back and said that this passage had been popping up over and over again in her life for months. And this is the one that was read earlier. The Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. Though they stumble, they will never fall. For the Lord holds them by the hand. Our God is a God of details. We have this saying, the devil's in the details. God is. There were details through this whole trip that were God. I know you've spent a lot of time listening to us, and I, I thank you for that. What I want to say to you as takeaway from all of this is don't leave God out of your story. What we went through in Haiti after hearing the sermon this morning was nothing comparatively. We were very humbled by that. We talked about how, how can we do tonight after hearing those stories this morning. But this story is not us, it's God. It's God revealing himself and giving us the opportunity to witness it. When we are open to that, no matter the story that we have, he's there. We have to look for it. And when you tell your stories, whatever they are, and there are stories here that are so much more painful than what I've done, God's there too. Don't leave him out. You may not see him right now, but he's there. I thank you for your attention. It's our tradition to give you an opportunity to respond.
if God has been in your story and you haven't acknowledged yet, you have an opportunity to do so. If you need us to be, for, be there for you and pray with you, we are here. If you've not ever acknowledged God as part of the story and you want to do so now and become a member of his church, you have that opportunity. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening to what we had to say. If you have needs, please come forward as we stand and sing.